pray. Father, thank you for a chance to worship you, and we just cry out and declare together that, that you are great. How great is our God. What a joy to sing that together. And Father, now we, we come and in humility, we ask for your help. Would you, by your spirit, teach us this morning? Would you help us to understand what we read in your word? Thank you for your word and an opportunity to study it together. We see that this is just an act of worship, that we come before you with open hands and say, Lord, have your way. Would you speak? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, hey, welcome once again to FBC. My name is Matt, uh, pastor here, and just so glad that you are with us. I want to invite you to turn in your Bible with me to the book of Luke, chapter 15, starting in verse 25. Again, the book of Luke, chapter 15, verse 25, where we're continuing this kind of mini-series for the month of July, where we're saying, hey, we need to slow down as a church family, try to simplify a little bit. So we've done some things around the church, like including kids in the service rather than having our kids classes. Uh, we've slowed down uh, the calendar a little bit, and we've said, hey, let's do some teaching on the idea of Sabbath and the idea of rest, just something that we all desperately need. And so for a few weeks, Pastor Lee taught on the, the biblical foundation for Sabbath, what it is, why we should practice it. And last week, we started what we're doing for the rest of the month of July, which is three weeks in this parable of the prodigal son. Because when it comes to rest, it's not just about clearing your calendar and slowing down as much as that's important. It's also about looking deep within our hearts and say, what's going on in our hearts that keeps us from rest? Deep soul rest and peace and joy in the Lord. And so we're looking at Luke 15 as our guide. It's a story known as uh, the parable of the prodigal son, one that many of us have likely heard before. It's a story that Jesus told during his earthly ministry. And we see these examples in the story of human restlessness and ways that we are caught up in, in, in sin and discontentment and how to find joy and fulfillment. And we're, we're, we're leaning heavily on a book called The Prodigal God by Pastor Tim Keller. Uh, it looks like this, and there's copies of it in the back for free. If you want just to dive deeper into this parable, it's a fantastic read. So grateful. One of my favorite books uh, truly ever. And so grab a copy of that if you'd like. Uh, again, this is week two of three. So, hey, some of us um, have noticed, and researchers have actually noticed, that there's often in a pattern in families with multiple siblings, that the firstborn tend to act, tends to act a certain way, and the middle child, or if there is one, and the youngest, the baby of the family, tends to act a certain way. Now just take a second with me, if you would, turn to someone next to you and share your birth order. Are you the oldest? Are you the youngest? The baby in the family, the middle? Take a second, share that with someone around you. Well done. 
A simple question, right? And yet, as we can tell by the volume in the room, quite a lot of emotion and feeling wrapped up in that reality. So here's what researchers have found. It's not always like this, so take this with a grain of salt, but often researchers have found that the oldest in the family, the firstborn, is often responsible, has a strong sense of duty, uh, does what is right for the family. They have an obligation, perhaps, to, to stay home, help with the family business, not as free to go off and pursue their own dreams because they want to help out mom and dad. They aim to please their parents. Again, not always, but often. Yes. <laughs> At the same time, not always, but often, the younger sibling, the baby of the family, is much less concerned with pleasing mom and dad. They're more interested often in their peers. They're a little bit more rebellious, uh, free-spirited, interested in self-discovery, spreading their wings, more uh, ready to leave home. So in general, oldest sibling, uh, focused on responsibility, pleasing the parents, younger sibling, a bit rebellious, free spirit. If you're an only child, I really don't know what to do with you. There's some <laughs> blending of the two, depending, but you get it. Now, this illustrates uh, two ways to operate within our families, but also there's a posture here, a heart posture that displays kind of different ways we relate with God different ways our spiritual life tends to go. And that's what this parable really gets into. If you haven't turned there, again, Luke 15, verse 25. Just a recap of the story. If you're not familiar, Jesus tells a story about a son who leaves home. And he says he wants nothing to do with his father. And so he gets his dad's money. And he goes to a far-off land, and he squanders his family's wealth, and he, he's living recklessly. He hits rock bottom, and, and all along the way, he's bringing shame and dishonor upon his family in a big way. But then he has a change of heart, and he decides to come home because he's desperate. And he says, maybe my dad will at least let me, you know, live in the servants' quarters and work, and I won't be part of the family again, but I'll have something to eat. And he, he returns home not knowing how he would be received. But we see in the story that, that the father runs to him and welcomes him home with, with open arms and this lavish display of favor and blessing and love is poured out on this son. And it's a really vivid reminder of the heart of God and how he welcomes sinners home. And this story has just been, it's been stuck in, in the imagination of men and women uh, for centuries and centuries. It, it was the inspiration for Rembrandt's famous painting, if you know it, in the 1600s, uh, the painting known as The Return of the Prodigal Son. I believe we have a visual for it. It's kind of zoomed in. This isn't the whole thing, but just to fit the screen, we, we zoomed in a little bit. And you see the, the wayward son uh, kneeling beside his father, and his father places his arms around him. A, a loving embrace, welcoming his child home. But in the painting, you can't fully see it right here, but there's some kind of shadowy figures lurking in the dark. Because it turns out not everybody is happy about this reunion. 
In fact, someone who should be quite happy, a member of the family, the older brother, is not pleased that his younger brother has returned home. And see, in the painting and in the story, we see that this second brother, the firstborn, he was different from the younger brother. He didn't go off and live a reckless life and, and bring shame upon the family and waste all their money. No, he, he worked hard. And he was responsible. And he stayed home. And he kept the rules. But... As we saw last week, he was just as lost as his younger brother. We hear that we say, well, how can that be? Uh, Henry Nouwen, a, a Dutch priest, wrote this in his classic book on the prodigal son. He says this, not only did the younger son who left home to look for freedom and happiness in a distant country get lost, but the one who stayed home also became a lost man. Exteriorly, he did all the things a good son is supposed to do. But interiorly, he wandered away from his father. He did his duty, worked hard every day, and fulfilled all his obligations, but became increasingly unhappy and unfree. So the key to understanding the parable is that both brothers are lost. Both brothers are restless in their hearts. And you can wander away from the father all while staying at home. And it might look good on the outside. You're doing the right things. You're going to church. You're going to your Bible study. But in your heart, you can grow disillusioned with your father. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to spend some time looking at the older brother and his heart and doing a little bit of heart surgery, uh, dissecting his heart, you could say, and figure out what exactly was going on in his heart to make him respond in such a way. Because he didn't know he was lost. He might not have even realized where he had gone wrong because his lostness was, again, buried under layers of obedience and the sad fact is there's a lot of older brothers in churches today. I'm often one of them. And so we have to look and see some of these warning signs so, so we don't fall into the same trap. And if you're here this morning and you're not a churchgoer, you're not a Christian, well then, hey, uh, good for you. You get to kind of listen in uh, and have some fun seeing how us Christians, us church people, tend to get it wrong. A lot. And how we need to practice repentance as well. So we're going to look at the text. Before we talk about uh, the multiple ways he got it wrong, I just want to say one word about how he, the older brother, actually got some things right. There's one thing in particular he got right. Look at verse 30. This is the older brother speaking to his father. He says, but when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. And then the father responds, my son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So notice this, the older brother lashes out 
And he says about his younger brother, he has squandered your wealth and property, father. He has brought shame upon our family. Here's the question. Was he wrong about that? No. The older brother is absolutely right that what his younger brother had done in leaving home and bringing shame upon the family and squandering wealth was a terrible, grave sin. He had brought shame. He had squandered wealth. He uh, had sinned against his father. That was all true. And the father, notice, in his response to the older brother, did not say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Your younger brother did nothing wrong. He was just living, laughing, and loving out there. He was you do you and doing his thing. There are many paths to life and joy, so let's not be so judgmental about him. He was fine. Actually, I admire his independent spirit and how he was out there doing things. I celebrate his lifestyle. I'm cheering him on. I'm putting likes on Facebook for how he's living. Woo! No, the father doesn't say that. No, he acknowledges, yeah, he was dead. In verse 32, he says, yeah, he was lost. So the older son is not wrong there. He was wrong about a lot of things. We'll talk about him. He was wrong about redemption. He was wrong about grace and how it works. But he wasn't wrong about sin. So you have to be careful because one way to get this parable wrong and the heart of God wrong is to think that it downplays the reality of sin. Is to think that somehow it means that sin is, is not a big deal. And we all have sin in our lives and God is gracious and so let's not judge. And today we, we want to be compassionate Trust me, I get it. We have this impulse, this pressure to, to, again, to love well, to be inclusive, to be gracious. I get it. But, but we sometimes go too far, and we feel that the pressure then is to ignore sin or say sin's not that really uh, big of a deal, or we all have it, and so let's not talk about it. It's not a problem. God is loving after all. Do you see the, the error there? As Christians, we hold two truths together. One, sin is serious. Sin leads to death. Sin against God puts us under judgment. And God saves sinners. And God loves sinners and is gracious to sinners when we repent and turn to him. And so, so hear me, hear me. No matter uh, who you are or where you've been or what you've done or what your past looks like, no matter what your sin is, we all have it. God is here with, with open arms inviting you to, to come home. But you have to come home. Amen. Right? We have to take sin seriously and invite wayward brothers and sisters to come home. So the older brother wasn't wrong there. But let's take a look at where he was wrong. We see it start when the younger brother comes home and the party's going. Verse 25 says this. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. 
The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. And then here's the first warning sign. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. So here's the first warning sign, what he got wrong. He views life with his father as duty without delight. Again, he views life with his father as duty without delight. Can you guys say that with me? Duty without delight. All these years, what do he say? I've been slaving for you. I've been working hard. I've been obedient. But you notice it's joyless. He doesn't really seem convinced that he's living the good life. Sure, he's doing what he should do, what he ought to do, what is right to do. But he's missing out. He's missing out on the fun that his younger son, his younger brother got to have. He's missing out on the fun that others are getting to experience. Again, let's hang out with our friend Henry now and the Dutch priest one more time. He captures this dynamic well in his book. Some of us will relate with this. He says, older brothers have a certain envy toward their younger brothers and sisters who seem to be less concerned about pleasing and much freer in doing their own thing. This is Henry speaking. He says, for me, this was certainly the case. In all my life, I have harbored a strange curiosity for the disobedient life that I myself didn't dare to live, but which I saw being lived by many around me. I did all the proper things, mostly complying with the agendas set by the many parental figures in my life, teachers, spiritual directors, bishops, popes. But at the same time, I often wondered why I didn't have the courage to run away as the younger son did. It's strange to say this, but deep in my heart, I have known the feeling of envy toward the wayward son. It's the emotion that arises when I see my friends having a good time doing all sorts of things that I condemn. I called their behavior reprehensible or even immoral. But at the same time, I often wondered why I didn't have the nerve to do some of it or all of it myself. The obedient and dutiful life of which I am proud or for which I am praised, feels sometimes like a burden that was laid on my shoulders and continues to oppress me. There's some layers to that, right? The older brother essentially is saying the, the Christian life is, is duty without delight. It's obedience without joy, doing what you ought to do, but really there's this inner sense of I'm being cheated out of the good life. I know I can relate with that. Maybe you can too. Envious of those living a bit more carefree. You know, I've wondered to myself, I've thought to myself, maybe I'd be a little more fulfilled in life if I partied more in college or went wild before settling down or made a bunch of money before, you know, going into ministry. I'm not always convinced I'm living the good life. Maybe life would have been better if I disobeyed some of God's ways and went and did my own thing. 
When we're in this place, we probably have a, a dry prayer life. We experience little intimacy with God. We become grumpy Christians with the spiritual gift of discouragement. <laughs> We're suspicious of those other Christians who seem jovial, who aren't as serious as we are. We think that those who aren't as exhausted or grim must not be as spiritual as we are. They're not taking this whole thing serious enough. Jesus shows us there's something deeply flawed in our hearts when we view life with the Father as duty without delight. And that's a diagnostic question then for each of us this morning. Do we really believe that life with Jesus, that life with God, our Father, is the good life? If we drill down into our hearts, do we really believe that? That the gospel is good news. That living in the Father's house is good for us. Or, when we look at our Christian life, do we use words like the older brother did in verse 29 and describe it as slaving? It's work. It's exhausting. Or do we use words like joy and peace and life? And celebration. Now, to clarify, the Christian life has its challenges. Suffering comes. Happiness on the surface might not always be evident in every season, but there hopefully should be this, this deep undercurrent of, of inner joy, of soul satisfaction, of deep rest that comes, hey, I might not know exactly how the math works out on all these situations or why exactly my life looks the way that it does, but I know my father and I trust that he is good and that he's not holding out on me. So the first warning sign, duty without delight. The second that we see in the older brother is this, a feeling of entitlement. And that feeling goes like this. God owes me. We see this again in verse 29. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. Not only has my life been slaving for you, Father, and hard work and exhausting, but I haven't received any reward for it. My younger brother gets this party. You kill the fattened calf for him. I don't even get a small goat to celebrate with my friends here and there. We've used this phrase before. We've pointed this out. Some of you have heard this before. But this is, again, uh, the older brother is experiencing what medical professionals call where's my goat syndrome. <laughs> where's my goat? Can you say that with me? Where's my goat? Right? Our family goes to church. We even tithe. I tell the truth and have integrity at my job. I show up early to make coffee. I volunteer. I host people in my home. I pray. Where's my goat? 
God, I do all these things for you, and what do I have to show for it? Where's my health and protection? Because someone in my family is sick, or someone in my family passed away, and so you didn't hold up your end of the bargain. Where's my goat? Where's my raise? Why can't I seem to to make it financially like those around me do? Where's, Where's my at least recognition, praise, Stage time. Where's my comfortable life? Where's my goat? And so when things are hard, we we blame God for not holding up his end of the bargain. That's entitlement. I deserve this. And we totally miss the concept of grace. That all we have is a gift, unmerited favor from God. And so the, the simple formula for our agreement Uh, Again, as we just mentioned, is this, Father, I obey, I jump through the hoops, I follow your commands, and I get rewarded. You give me what I want. And my brother, again, according to that formula, what's happening with the younger brother makes no sense, because he hasn't obeyed, he's left home, and so he shouldn't get the good things that he's experiencing now. So you're not keeping your end of the deal, Father. And so... In that place, if that's your heart, then you're not obeying the Father because you love the Father. You're not obeying God because you love God and want to please God and want to walk with God. You're obeying God so you can control God and have leverage over God. Jump through the hoops and then he'll be in your debt. Now, often, again, the danger of this is that it's really subtle. And most of us wouldn't, you know, blast it on social media or say it out loud. I deserve this. Where's my goat? And yet, deep in our hearts, again, there's this undercurrent of anger, resentment, bitterness, suspicion that God owes us more than we have. And social media just puts a flame to this. Just, I mean, just makes it so much bigger than it could be because we see what others are getting, what other people are experiencing, the fun trips or whatever, health, well-being, whatever it is that other people are having, experiences and opportunities, and it makes it even harder for us to practice contentment in what God has given us. Further, when we walk this way, it shows us that we don't really want a relationship with God, and we don't think we need a Savior Right? Because we can do it ourselves. We can keep the rules. We can jump through the hoops. We, we can earn the blessings. We can earn our way back. Jesus then becomes, hey, a good example for us. Yeah, he did some great things, said some good things, cool. But he's not our savior because we don't need one. So, feeling entitled. The third and last warning sign we're going to talk about is disdain for younger brothers. A noted disdain for younger brothers. Look at verse 29 again. It said, but he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Do you hear the bitterness in his heart? 
This son of yours, he says in verse 30, not my brother, this son of yours. And he brings up his shame. Did you forget about that, dad? How he squandered your wealth, dad, and wild living, dad? You remember that? Did you forget about how he brought shame upon our family? And you throw this party for him? Him? See, comparison is the name of the game for an older brother. He's radically insecure. His sense of identity and security has to be bolstered by the failures of others. And so his younger brother has sinned quite visibly. And so he, as the older brother, he has the moral high ground and wants to be treated as such. He would never do such a thing. He has his theology right. He has his behavior right. He's cleaned up. And so he has disdain. He's condescending towards those who don't. And so older brothers often lack empathy, can be rather judgmental and cold, feel superior, look down on others. I've figured it out. Why can't you? They're slow to extend compassion and patience and grace and really don't see themselves in the same boat as those types of sinners. And while loving messy people is great in theory, loving messy people is difficult when they're in our own church. In our church? Here? Messy people? I'm not sure I'm okay with that. And again, we can defend a biblical approach to current social issues. We, we can talk about the truth of Scripture against the different narratives of culture, whatever they might be. But how we do this is so important. If we're dismi- uh, dismissive and, and condescending to others who view things differently, we should not be surprised when they don't want to hear any more about this Jesus we claim to love. So, duty without delight. Feeling entitled. Disdain for younger brothers. It's not a pretty picture, is it? Again, Tim Keller summarizes well. Elder brothers have an undercurrent of anger toward life circumstances. Hold grudges long and bitterly. Look down at people of other races, religions, and lifestyles. Experience life as a joyless, crushing drudgery. Have little intimacy and joy in their prayer lives. And have a deep insecurity that makes them overly sensitive to criticism and rejection, yet fierce and merciless in condemning others. If you've resonated with any of this this morning, anything we've covered so far, you can relate to the older brother like I can, then hopefully you're wondering, what is the solution? How do we change? Is there any hope for an older brother like me to get some of this junk out of my heart? Maybe we even experience these things and we're like, I don't want them there. I know they shouldn't be there, and yet they're there. Lord, help me. There is hope. There's hope in the gospel. And we see it in in the Father's words in verse 31. Look at how the Father responds, even to his, his punk oldest son. 
who deserves a beating and tossed out just as much as the younger son. Even to him, his father comes to him with patience and mercy and grace. My son, the father said, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Rather than scolding, beating, and disowning the older brother, the father gently pleads with him, my son. And he reminds him, hey, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. He he reminds him of the heart of the gospel, and that's what relationship with the father. We can be reconciled to the father and walk in relationship with the God of heaven because of the work of Jesus. And so this father reminds his son, you are always with me. He loves him. My life is yours. What have I withheld from you? Everything I have is yours, he tells him. Pastor John Piper has put it this way, the gospel is not a way to get people to heaven, it's a way to get people to God. Again, the gospel is not a way to get people to heaven, it is a way to get people to God. The gospel is not some impersonal ticket to a cloudy, eternal existence. The gospel is a way to get you back into a transformative relationship with the God who made you and loves you. An invitation to be reconciled to him through the work of Christ. Younger brothers and older brothers alike need to be reminded of the Father's great love for them and rest in the Father's love. That's the answer. We need to believe the gospel. We need to rest in the Father's love because it reminds us that God's love is not based on performance. It's not based on getting it right. It's a free gift, not something we earn. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the only answer for an older brother heart. It's the only thing that will free us. Why? Because it tells the truth about our sin and our need and our separation from God. But it also tells us about the grace and mercy and love of God and how he's made a way for us to come back into relationship with him. It tells us about the work of Jesus and how he died for us and how he forgives all who turn to him. And so rather than duty without delight, we can have joy as we serve God. Serving him as a grateful response to all that he's done for us. Believing that we're living the good life when we are walking with Christ. Rather than feeling entitled, we can humbly recognize that our salvation is by grace through faith. We didn't earn it. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve it more than anybody else. It's a free gift given to us in Christ. God doesn't owe us anything. And yet he's given us everything in Christ. And rather than looking at younger brothers with disdain, in humility we can recognize our own sin and our own need and marvel at the fact that God in his grace and mercy would save even someone like me. 
Week three, next week. We spend one more week here. There's more to dig into. But here today, I want you to know whether you're a younger brother or an older brother in birth order or in your heart before the Lord, know that there is a God in heaven who loves you and who invites you to come home and rest in his love. And you can do so because of the work of Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you for this picture in Luke 15 of your heart. You are so good. You, you open your arms wide to, to welcome home wayward sons and daughters, whether we have sinned and strayed in visible ways like the younger brother in the story, or whether we've stayed home and done the church thing, but in our hearts we've been far from you. Thank you for your mercy and your grace. Thank you that you forgive us in Christ. And I pray now that if there's anyone here this morning uh, who has not come home, who has not said yes to the invitation to repent and to trust in Christ for salvation, that, that even now their hearts would be turned to you, Jesus. That they would look to you and worship you as Lord and Savior. It's in your name we pray. Amen.